It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 124, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, Chris Field, farms 14 acres of ground with his partner, Jesse Okamoto, at Campo Rosso Farm in Gilbertsville, Pennsylvania. Campo Rosso Farm is what happens when two New York foodies decide to start a farm. Chris and Jesse grow a wide variety of very high-quality Italian chicories, radicchios, endives, and more as the cornerstone of their operation, and they market them through New York City's Union Square Green Market and wholesale to restaurants in New York City. We dig into how Chris and Jesse learned how to grow this challenging crop and how they get compensated for the high labor inputs that chicories require. And while we didn't get into proprietary details of the more specialty varieties that Camparosa grows, Chris provides a primer on producing quality chicories for fall production, as well as insights on how they produce other high-end crops bursting with flavor. Chris also provides insights into their marketing strategy, how he and Jesse jumped from city jobs into farming, and how he and Jesse are working to solve the challenges they've had sourcing labor for their young operation. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Chris Field, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, I've been a long-time listener. Glad to be a part of it. I've been watching your farm on Instagram for quite some time and in holding the title as, as the largest radicchio grower in the state of Iowa for a period of about 12 years. I've been really intrigued by what you're doing there at Campo Rosso Farm. Can you give us the lay of the land there at Campo Rosso? Where are you guys located? How are you selling your products? How many acres you're growing on? And, and how, how you would describe what you're focusing on at Campo Rosso? Yeah, so we're uh, we're in southeastern Pennsylvania in a town called Gilbertsville. Um, it's a pretty small town, and um, we're currently renting about a fourteen acre field, and uh, we sell we sell primarily to the green market in New York City, and we do a ton of wholesale to restaurants in New York City as well, and um, kind of specialize in, in a lot of different specialty vegetables, uh, chicory being our biggest crop that we grow. And um, yeah, we just try to do a lot of different things and keep up with our chef clientele. So keeps us pretty busy. I think it would be fair to say that most of the growers that I've interviewed on the Farmer to Farmer podcast have grown between 30 and 50 different crops on their farm. And when I say, when I say crops, I'm not talking about varieties. I'm talking about, you know, asparagus, zucchini, beets, you know, all of those things. You guys have really chosen to, to focus and especially on those chicories. What prompted you to do that? Yeah. So we, um, we, we worked at two other farms in, uh, one in New York and then one in Pennsylvania, and they both had reputations for being the the strawberry guy or the tomato guy and like in the new york market you know it's a really it's a big market in a lot of ways and like to to be able to like keep up with the demand of a certain product you kind of have to you have to be able to produce enough 
you know, to keep restaurants happy, to keep customers at the market happy. So like specializing is something that, I don't know, kind of seemed to me to be like a smarter idea as far as like, you know, with limited, limited labor and limited land to be able to produce something that we can really hook people on and, and be able to offer it consistently and, uh, and, uh, and of a high quality. And I mean, when you talk about being, you know, say like the strawberry guy, right? Everybody eats strawberries. Um, I happen to know that that's not so true of radicchio. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually been, uh, we've been really lucky because it kind of started out that we were, we were starting getting, starting to get really into growing radicchio, um, mainly because we, we were really enjoying eating it. Um, when we worked at the farm in the Catskills, um, for Mountain Sweet Berry Farm, he, he's always been like a pretty big pioneer of, of growing specialty vegetable. And, you know, he's been doing it since 80, 85 or 86. And he kind of instilled this love of Italian products. So we, we kind of started out just, being like, wow, we really like eating this radicchio or treviso or, you know, any of these obscure varieties that we could find at, at specialty stores in New York. And um, so we kind of just went with it. We were like, well, we should try to grow it. And so since then, it's been like a, a long journey of a lot of research and a lot of a lot of time trying to trying to figure that crop out um, for ourselves. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. How long have you been farming at Camparoso? Uh, so Campo Rosso, we have been farming. This is our fourth season um, in production, and we kind of the farm in, in Pen- the other farm we worked at in Pennsylvania, uh, and the farm in the Catskills. We kind of had a sort of managerial role to where we could kind of do whatever we wanted as far as like planting crops and stuff. So we've kind of been working on it on the radicchio crop for uh, six to seven years now uh, at the two different farms as well. Okay, so growing radicchio is not the easiest thing to do. I mean, you know, and we talked a little bit about how not everybody loves radicchio, but it's also, I mean, it's not like, it's not like tomatoes where you can just go buy some transplants and stick them in the ground. How did you go about learning to grow these specialty crops? Well, I mean, I would say like radicchio and uh, treviso are the two ones that probably most people can can associate with. and. Uh, those are kind of like some of the easier varieties and really like we've basically just taken, taken some of the regional specialties of Northern Italy. Like, you know, every town kind of has its own variety, you know, whether it's Treviso, which is a town, uh, Chioggia, which is, uh, where the traditional round red radicchio that everyone knows of is from, um, Castelfranco, which is a variegated one. And that, that town's a little further North. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of it really is just regional specialties that, uh, you know, these, these old peasant Italian farmers have, have developed and bred for a long time to kind of like put their town on the map in a lot of ways. And so it's been like a long journey trying to, trying to read and, and research. And, you know, we've been to Italy a few times and, and, uh, done, done a lot of, a lot of trips there to see farms and see how people are doing it. So. Now, in my in my world of radicchio growing, we basically grew the the round red radicchios, the the Chioggia types, yep. and then we grew the the Trevisio types, and those are the the ones that look kind of like a romaine lettuce, except that they're they're bright red and and have the white ribs, but they stand up that same way. And those are both available. We 
you know, when you, when you look in the seed catalogs, you get your Johnny's selected seeds catalog, turn to the, the page on chicories and there they are. But if you're going to specialize as a chicory grower, you're going far beyond that. Um, and I, and I'd also note that when you buy those varieties from Johnny's, they're, they're hybrids. They, they produce really well. You know, I know that we had a lot of issues with production primarily around stuff bolting, uh, before it, before it headed up nicely. But with, with those hybrid varieties, it, it really wasn't that bad. And it didn't compare at all to the stories that we'd heard about the open pollinated stuff. I, how did you go about learning to grow the different varieties that you discovered? Yeah. So basically the, the first thing that we, we found out is a lot of the different varieties, um, it's super climate specific. So it's taken us quite a few years to find out like when the right time to plant is for, you know, all the different varieties, especially um, some of the, some of the more obscure ones that we grow. Um, but yeah, like you said, like the, the hybrid varieties are, are bred to resist bolting and those are a pretty sure bet um, through a lot of the year, but you know, here in Pennsylvania, we do, we do do some chicory in the spring, but it's, it's very difficult, um, because our springs can be so erratic, you know, like we had 90 degrees about 10 days ago. And, um, and then, you know, today it was, you know, 62 or something. So it's like, it really doesn't like the, the, the ups and downs of spring. Um, it's, you know, traditionally in, in the Veneto, uh, region of Italy, it's grown in the fall and that's like, that's the most traditional time period for it. It, you know, it really wants to go from that warm, warm summer into a cool fall into like a slowly, slowly towards frost, um, into the, into the winter. And, you know, that, that temperature fluctuation is really what triggers the heading of a lot of the varieties and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's really, that's probably the, the biggest thing to, to figure out about all the different varieties is, is climate, you know, and finding out what works, you know, when I see farms, uh, you know, in Texas growing radicchio in June, I'm like, man, it must be really hot there. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what their, what their success rate is probably going to be on that, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely definitely climate specific. And when you talk about figuring it out and figuring out those climate specificities, are you guys planting trials of different varieties? Yeah. So basically, um, when we take a new variety on, um, we'll 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 put it into a window that we think would make sense. And a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, like one variety that we grow. I remember the first year we ever planted it, we had. 95% loss all to bolting. And then the more and more research I did, um, I found out like, Oh no, that's too early to plant it. in in any climate pretty much, you know, cause a lot of it, the day length is a big part of a big part of it, um, with causing things to bolt or not bolt. Um, so like in the spring, you know, like if it's not a hybrid, if it's open pollinated, if it doesn't have that super bolt resistant, um, kind of built into its genes, you know, the longer days, it's like, I'm ready to go to seeds. So that's when you start to see a lot of bolting in it. So do you still experience a lot of bolting even when you get the timing, right? Yeah. Um, Jesse, she went through the, she went through the field today when we were, when we were, uh, weeding and she was pulling a few, a few early Castelfrancos, um, out of the row that were bolting. And it's kind of, we, we make a joke that it's almost like 
it's almost like bad luck, you know, like if you don't pull them out, it's going to spread. I mean, we, we totally joke about that, but it makes us uh, a little discouraged by the spring production, but. Well, and it was something I always, and I don't know if this has any basis in, in, in fact or not, but I always assumed that a plant that was bolting was probably sending off chemical signals to every other plant in the neighborhood that it was time to bolt too, because, you know, you want your buddies to be coming into, into fertility at the same time that you are, right? And, and so, um, yeah, I always, I always got rid of anything that was bolting in the field. Now you mentioned discouraging for the spring production, but you guys obviously have demand for this crop throughout the growing season. It's, I assume you can't just say to your chefs there in New York, like only in the fall, are you going to get chicories? Yeah. I mean, you know, I got an email today from a few different chefs, like when's the, when's the escrow going to be ready? When's the, when's the ridicule going to be ready? And because it's been such a late spring that kind of went in a little bit late, but typically like, you know, our spring season for, for chicory is only about five to six weeks on a good year. Um, and then in the summer we, we transition to some other like tomatoes and peppers and zucchini that are a little more on the interesting side. And, uh, but truly like fall is the biggest time. And, and that's like, people know, you know, most of, most of September, you know, through January is, is our biggest crunch for it. So they, they kind of understand and, and know that there is some seasonality to it because when, you know, when it starts to get hot, that's when radicchio can be a little more bitter and, and not quite as palatable. And so some of, some of my not wanting to push so hard in the spring is, is like, unless you really love the bitter flavor, you're not really going to appreciate it as much as you would if it was in the fall. And I think that that's part of been, that's been part of our success is, is growing it at the right time in the right season. So when you showed up at market, when you talk about appreciating radicchio, is there's, there's some people that do, and there's a lot of people that simply don't, especially here in, in the United States. When you started bringing this crop to market, both at the green market and wholesale, what kind of a reception did you get? Yeah, it was pretty, it was actually pretty interesting. We were talking about it the other day and, and, um, New York is a really, the farmer's market in New York is a really interesting market because, you know, there's obviously like a lot of high end customers, not restaurants, just like, you know, regular foodies or whatever you want to call it. Um, and pretty much right away within, within two or three, three markets, you know, we had regular regulars that were coming every week and saying everything was so good. And I think that, you know, the quality um, was recognized and appreciated right away. Um, and it's really just like, like one variety specific Castelfranco, which is, it's kind of almost like an escarole, but it has, um, some like modded modeled, um, speckling to it. And we, we usually put that one out front because it's a, one of the more beautiful varieties that we grow and B, it's super approachable to someone that, you know, maybe is a little more adverse to say something that's super bitter, like Treviso. Um, and so, you know, we kind of, we kind of catch them with, with the eye appeal of how beautiful the Castelfrancos can be. And then, you know, they ask us questions. They're like, oh, I don't know if I like bitter. And then we're, we just, you know, convince them to try it. And then the next week they come back and they're like, oh, it wasn't really, it wasn't overly bitter. It was really delicious. So... Um, that's kind of like, I would say that that's our gateway drug into the chicory world, I guess you could say. And like so many of the chicories, it's a striking variety. I think that's one of the things that I always enjoy about cooking with this crop is that it's got so much visual appeal. 
Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, that's like we we spend a lot of time at market, you know, making sure it looks right and looks striking because, you know, you can just harvest something and, you know, leave some green leaves on the outside, but you know, we really try to clean things up, you know, like on Treviso if you if you clean it up to where the rib is pure white and the and the leafy part is that deep maroon color, it's just so much more striking than if you just if you just harvest, leave the leave the outer leaves on and don't really clean it up very much. So that's that's one thing that we learned in our experience, um, like seeing some farms in Italy is really cleaning it up and making it look proper. How much time did you spend on farms in Italy? Uh, we 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 didn't spend a ton of time on farms. We, there was two big trips that we went on. Um, there was one that we were there for three weeks visiting farms and. Um, that was probably the the initial trip. That was early on. I think that was 2012, maybe. Yeah, I think that's when about when it was. Um, and and then we've we've been back another time um, two years ago and seen a lot of, a lot of uh, a lot of different farms forcing setups. And that was another big uh, another big learning for us. Forcing setups. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so like some some varieties, they don't fully mature in the field. Um, so you basically uh, you want to find another way to keep it growing. And every town, like in Riviso, they have ample water from the Sile River, um, and so they use the water from the river. They harvest plants, and then they they use the water from the river to to continue growing. You know, they divert it into these ponds. Um, so that's like one way of, of forcing or, you know, in Lusia, uh, which is another town, they don't have ample water. So they use sand to force, um, which some like some people may be familiar with, like how Belgian Andive is grown. And sometimes people use water. Sometimes people use peat moss. Sometimes people use sand. So there's there's like many different ways that you can do it. And it kind of has to do with what's available and what's around you. And when you're talking about these different mediums, peat moss, sand, water, you're talking about a, a rooting substrate because you're, you're harvesting the roots out in the field. Mm-hmm. And like with Belgian endive, you chop the tops off and then you bring them in and plant, you know, store them until you're ready to, to have them make their crop again. And then you stick them in the sand or the peat moss and keep them dark while they're growing. Is, is it the same process for all of the chicories that are being forced? They're... They're all a little different. Um, certain ones, you know, like like Belgian endive, uh, that needs needs that cold treatment. Like you're really supposed to harvest the roots and then store them. I think in the Johnny's catalog it says you're supposed to store them for three weeks or something. And it's basically to like to vernalize them um, to make them think that they kind of have gone through a winter. Um, but like they're all a little different, and they're all. They're all a little bit uh, finicky in their own way. And, you know, some varieties that we do, you know, say in water, but we've also done it in sand or we've also done it in peat moss. And, you know, it's kind of there's really subtle differences to it. You know, you're really just trying to you're trying to take the stored energy that's in the roots and push it into new growth. And so, you know, there's a there's a lot of different ways to do it. So we did Belgian endive for a few years and it was something that I always really enjoyed. And I especially loved the fact that I had an abundant supply to eat myself and it sold fairly well at farmer's market. And we could do some in the wholesale or, and we could do some in the CSA box, but, but it was so labor intensive. 
You know, I mean, it was it was insane just how much work went into harvesting, storing, replanting, trying to get them to grow in in perfect darkness, uh, and then and then pulling them back out, harvesting. Has the amount of labor that's required to do these crops, especially these forest crops, been a challenge for you? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely been a challenge. Uh, like we were the trip we were on two years ago, um, we visited this really small farm. Uh, they were maybe they were in hectares. I'm trying to think of what what they had said. I don't know. Maybe maybe they were farming 20 acres, 15 acres, something like that. Um, and you know, Jesse and I both were, were really excited. We're like, all right, we're going to go, we're going to see all these people forcing stuff and, and we're going to find the, you know, the key, the, the key to Pandora's box in a lot of ways to try to figure out what's easier. And first, first farm we visit, you know, we're talking to the, to the couple and it's a couple and her dad. And, um, you know, I think they had one other person working with them and, and they had this really beautiful box of forced rosettes of this variety that they kind of have done their own breeding on. And we're asking questions and, and, um, she was like, yeah, you know, the, the box, the clean box, it was like a one kilo box. So two and a two and a half or 2.2 pounds. And, um, she said, it's about two hours of labor just in cleaning. And then I was like, yeah, but what do you get at the wholesale market? You know, I, I expected that maybe they would get a good price because it's a pretty, pretty amazing product. And, and, you know, pretty unique. And, and sure enough, it was, it was like 19 euros a kilo or something. So, you know, not, not really expensive at all. And, and, uh, I really think that it comes down to like, you know, these, these farms in Northern Italy, it's, it's just like, it's a part of their culture and it's a part of their heritage in a lot of ways. And we really are just, I guess, obsessed with it enough to, to justify, justify all the labor that goes into it. And are you able to make price demands there in New York that compensate you for that? Yeah, we've been really lucky that, um, actually, in, in two ways, we've been really lucky. We've been really lucky that the price of some of the, some of the more obscure varieties coming from Italy is very high because of importing. And also um, that New York, you know, because it's a, it's a higher end market, you know, things typically are, are upcharged a little bit more than somewhere else. So we've we've been able to benefit from the fact that you know the the stuff that's imported from Italy is very very expensive, and then you know we also can get a good price because no one's growing it, and because um, you know I feel like when we tell people, especially restaurants, you know that say, oh, this is X amount of dollars per pound, that's expensive, and then when we we're like come to the farm and come see it, you know, come see how much work it is to clean all this stuff. Then they're like, oh, well, I guess it isn't so bad, you know, when you really break it down for them. I think it's really interesting that you're competing with greens that are being imported from Italy. I don't think that's a very common competitor in the United States vegetable market. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, it's kind of funny because one of uh, there's a produce company that that we work with, Natura. They're from they're originally from uh, London and they've recently started up in New York. and. I remember seeing the price list of what they were getting from Italy, like what it was costing them to get it from Italy and some things we could beat them on price um, just because we're growing it here and some things they could beat us on price. So it was like, it really kind of surprised me that, that like, yeah, I could beat Castelfranco price versus, you know, a huge grower that grows, you know, 500 acres of it in, in Italy just because of import cost or because, um, that's just like what they're charging. So. 
And I suppose on the vice versa, when you're not able to beat their prices, it probably does have to do with being in that perfect combination of day length and climate that really make that crop grow exactly the way it's supposed to grow over there in Italy. Yeah, definitely. It's a part of it. You know, like all the farms that we've seen and and all the advice that we've gotten from the farms there, you know, we Pennsylvania has a pretty good climate for it. You know, depends. Some years it gets really cold come, you know, like late November, December, and we can get froze out completely on varieties that we were hoping to harvest, you know, for Christmas. So that's definitely a part of it. And so that's kind of where some of the pricing, our pricing comes into play. You know, like one of the varieties, Puntarelli that we grow, which is super famous from Rome. um, I would say on a good year, our harvest is 40 to 50%. And that's on a good year. Um, So we do kind of charge a little bit more because the, the demand is so high and the variability of that variety and um, just success rate is so low that, you know, we try to compensate for it in that way. How do you decide what chicories you're going to grow? The more, the merrier. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of our own research, um, into varieties, you know, I, before I started farming, uh, I actually was a chef in New York. And, um, so I, I had, I, I'm familiar, I was familiar with most of the varieties that we're currently growing and so I, I just basically, I don't know, spend a lot of time on, on the internet looking at websites that are um, seed catalogs and different things that are, that are not American-based um, to find new varieties and try new things. And there, periodically, there'll be a chef suggestion, like a chef recently asked me to grow uh, Blanche Dandelion, which I think in France, they're called Pisse and Lee, I think. Um, and I didn't really have much of an interest because the forcing varieties already kind of uh, wear us down pretty good. So I, I passed on that one for now. And I know, you know, when you and I talked before the show, you know, you mentioned that the green market is a very competitive marketplace. And, you know, you guys have put a lot of time and energy into figuring out how to grow these crops. It, and and I know we don't necessarily want to go into to really specific production details about about specific crops and varieties of chicories, but can you give us an overview of of best practices for chicory production? Yeah, uh, for the most part, uh, I would recommend people to try to grow it for the fall season. So shoot to harvest October, November. Um, basically, it really depends. Uh, if you get, you know, if you get much below freezing, um, by, you know, say mid November, you should probably stay on the early side of planting. Um, pretty much everything gets planted mid, mid summer ish, uh, on our farm and harvested, you know, October through January. But, um, yeah, you basically, you know, you want to put it on any normal growing path that you would, um, you know, say lettuce or any leafy crop. Um, it's not super finicky, you know, it's more, it's more sensitive to, to abuse of, of like not giving it enough water or, you know, some years we've seen October 15th, we've had 88 degrees and that's not very good. So, um, you know, really just kind of like stick with it and try, try different planting dates. You know, you're definitely going to have the most success with, some of the some of the more modern hybrid varieties that are available, 
Um, and just like give it, give it as much love as you can try to get, try to give it as much water and, and, uh, you don't want to go super strong on nitrogen, uh, because nitrogen sometimes can lead to more bitterness, uh, which, which is something that a lot of people don't know about chicory. So you kind of, you don't want to go too crazy, but you also don't want to have yellowing leaves and stuff. So, you know, I try to shoot for, I, I try to put out like 80 pounds of N or so 60 to 80 pounds of N per acre, I guess that would be a good, a good base calculation of, of, uh, nitrogen use for that. Any pest or disease problems that are challenging for chicory? Uh, pest, some years we actually get cutworm pretty bad in, in Trevisa and in the varieties that have more of a pronounced rib. Um, and so that's, but that's more so recently we've been using bt to try to remedy that and that seems to it doesn't seem to be a problem every year so it's not really that big of a deal um some years the late varieties like the stuff that we harvest in november can start to get powdery mildew pretty bad which is kind of weird for that late in the year um but typically the powdery mildew is more superficial you know you maybe just have to clean an extra one or two leaves off um i would say that that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, we put it in a good rotation program. We try to have it off of off of ground that we've had any other like leafy crops for at least three years. Um, in, in Italy, traditionally, there the wheat is harvested in, in I think late May, early June, and then radicchio follows that typically um, because you want that dry root culture um, from the wheat to be the predecessor to radicchio. So that's that's like the the traditional cycle of it, but we because we're on small acreage, we don't really have that luxury as much. But we just try to not go leafy after leafy on it for for uh, at least three years. You guys have problems with deer and voles. Deer are really a big problem. Yes, um, yeah, pretty much. It's been a, a a battle since since year one at the farm in the Catskills, where where. You know, he that farm is in a in a valley, and there's not a lot of other food for deer to eat. So of course they're going to go for a vegetable field, and deer really love radicchio. Um, if if no one if no one's grown radicchio without deer fence, or if anyone's grown radicchio without deer fence, they probably know that they get eaten pretty quickly, and they only they only eat the ones that are perfectly ready to pick, and they only nip just a little bit of it enough to ruin it. So. It's been a huge challenge uh, for us. Um, we moved farms two years ago. Uh, we had proper deer fencing at the other farm. And last year we were doing the, the slanted electric fence where you do um, two lines of electric wire at, at two feet and four feet on a 45 degree angle. And that the first year we did it at the new farm that we're at now, it worked pretty well. And, and they didn't really, they weren't really messing with any of our stuff. And I don't know if, if last year because we planted so much more radicchio or or what but we definitely got our shirt handed to us in one of the fields pretty pretty good um so this spring we put up a 14 acre deer fence around the whole field and uh and that's that i don't have to think about it anymore hopefully but voles voles not so much uh, i know some farms i've talked to out in the pacific northwest that have really bad vole problems but for us it's not a really big problem when you're putting those plants out, are you starting those from seed in the field or are you putting them out as transplants? Yeah, typically we always do transplants. Um, we do have good weed control on, on our transplant production. So, 
build, you know, Belgian on dive, you're supposed to direct seed. So you get the straight tap root. That's the only one that I really would, would direct seed because, you know, you want to store it the same way you would store a carrot. And, and if you transplant uh, like a knobby, ugly root is a lot harder or not harder, but it's just, it doesn't store as nicely as a perfectly cylindrical root of on So, um, yeah, I mean, typically we we do everything from transplant, except for a, a few, you know, like Belgian on dive or or some of like little rosette varieties that we grow. Um, those are usually are direct seeded. And and what are you using for a transplanter? We use a, a water wheel transplanter uh, from Rainflow. We like it, but um, ironically enough, this week we got approved for an equipment loan, um, so we're going to be buying a mechanica mechanical five thousand carousel transplanter um, for this year's fall production. And have you found any tricks for doing the transplant production itself? Uh, anything different that you're doing for that for chicories? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, you know, if you start in midsummer, your greenhouses are typically pretty hot. Um, so really, like temperature is something to really pay attention to. Some years, like we've been a little more lax about it and had really crappy germination. You know, on on weeks where it's super hot. Um, so sometimes even you know, we put we put uh, like a whole pallet full of trays that have been seeded in a in a like a barn or you know a different room or something to get them out of direct heat as much. And then it's like it's a it's a dance of trying to to check them every every you know half a day or so to make sure they're not starting to germinate. And that's kind of helped us on the hot years. Um, otherwise, you know, just water them two or three times a day to kind of cool, cool them down. And usually that, that, that works well on most years that aren't like blazing hot years. Do you have to do anything to keep the birds out of the greenhouse? We always had a horrible problem with the starlings coming in and eating the seeds of our radicchio plantings. Yeah, not too much. Uh, we don't really, we don't really have bird issues with it. I mean, sometimes, yeah, not, not, not really any bird issues. Great. That's a nice problem not to have. How long are you usually holding those radicchio plants or those chicory plants in the greenhouse? Typically, it's uh, about a four-week cycle. We use a 128 flat for radicchio and for most of our leafy crops just because um, with, with Vermont potting soil, which we use, we seem to do to have the nicest transplants with 128. Um, I haven't really ventured into 200s like some people have. Um, a big part of it is that since we bought uh, the finger weeder for, for cultivation, um, the bigger plant really helps because we can be more vigorous on that first and second cultivation when the plants are kind of small. So the 128 in the Vermont compost soil mix uh, typically works the best for us. You mentioned the finger weeder, so let's let's talk some about weed control on your farm because that's really important in a greens crop. Yeah, uh, we bought we bought the Cress finger weeder, uh, the three point hitch steerable kind. Um, so basically, it's three point hitch mounted. Uh, we're on we're on sixty inch centers is is uh, is our bed. And we do three rows at 15 inch spacing. Um, so we have the finger weeder to match that, that spacing. And typically uh, we transplant, uh, transplant the crops, water them in, and then five to seven days after we transplant, you know, depending on 
our schedule at market. And depending on the weather, five to seven days later, we go through the first time with the finger weeder um, with I'm driving the tractor. Jesse's on the on the, the finger weeder itself. And I'm just trying to steer as straight as possible. And she just makes, you know, small adjustments right or left to make sure that we're not knocking plants out. Okay. So could you tell me a little bit more about that finger weeder tool? Because, you know, now when I always think of cultivating on my farm, we did it all with belly mounted equipment. And it sounds like you're actually talking about steering something that's on the back of the tractor. Yeah. So basically um, it's three point hitch mounted and there's a toolbar with, with these gauge wheels that kind of have, this like little ridge in the center of the gauge wheel that digs into the ground. And then there's like a, this like steering, um, it's like this steering setup. So basically Jesse rides on the back and has kind of like bicycle handles. And um, she just slightly moves it right or left. And uh, then that's, that's what'll move, you know, the, the whole transplanter right or left because of the gauge wheels that dig it into the soil. And is that the only tool that you're using for weed control now? Uh, for all of our bare ground crops, yes. Uh, we have really good weed control with the finger weeder, and it's kind of mind-blowing how, how well it works. Um, it's, you know, it's a really expensive tool, but I don't think I'd ever look back or think twice about it. All right, and we'll include a link to that uh, for that finger weeder on the show notes for this episode. So, you know, people are, are looking for some more information about that. I'll make sure that there's some, some resources for where to find that. Something that has come so highly recommended from not just you, but several other farmers that I've interviewed. Yeah, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a, been a game changer for us. Uh, being that pretty much it's just Jesse and I, and we've had a couple random, random employees, like Jesse's brother is currently working with us. Um, but it has allowed us to to farm much more acreage on an on an intensive scale than than we probably even should. Uh, you know, like last year, we the only hoeing we ever did the whole entire season was some greenhouse lettuce uh, early in the spring. But typically, the finger weeder lets us get out without ever using a hoe, so we we're pretty happy with it. Now, are you doing a lot of production undercover? No, we ha- well. Not, not really. We have two, we have two high tunnels that are 25 by 144. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. So it's you and Jesse doing the harvest on 14 acres of vegetables. Uh, yeah, it's been, labor has been a huge challenge for us. Um, you know, there's a large population of, of farms around us, like, you know, down in Lancaster County and things. And we're actually surrounded by some of the biggest mushroom production houses in the country. So Spanish labor around here typically is in the nice, cool uh, mushroom houses for the summer. So we haven't really been super lucky because we don't offer, we don't have housing to offer because we rent the land and uh, we have just had a hard time on it. Um, But the 14 acres is is a recent, is a recent acquisition. Uh, Last year we had about nine and then we added six more this year or like five more this year. So we're definitely currently looking, looking for more help for harvest. I mean, you talked about this farm that you were on in Italy where they were looking at two hours of harvest for a couple of pounds of greens. What have you done to make your harvest efficient, to make it possible? I mean, weed control is one thing, but harvest is another when it comes to making it possible for two people to run a farm on their own. 
Yeah. Um, tractors as much as you can. Um, as much, as much as we can, we try to use, you know, the front end loader pallet forks, um, with crates and, you know, whether it's, you know, one person's cutting lettuce and one person's packing or like right now we were just doing, we're doing a lot of baby head production currently and, um, baby lettuce heads, uh, you know, I'll be driving the tractor through Jess will be cutting and her brother will be packing or whatever. So we basically just try to like minimize the amount of time that we're like, like wearing ourselves down by carrying one crate or two crates out of the row. And we just try to try to just be as quick as possible. Um, and as, as delicate on, on certain crops as we can. Can you tell me a little bit more about, about what that process you just described looks like? You said that Jesse's cutting, is she slicing the roots off of a lettuce or grabbing the head and, and cutting it and then handing that to her brother? And then is he, what's he doing with it? So we grow, we grow baby head lettuce on plastic. That's the only leafy crop that we grow on plastic because we like how clean it is. Um, you know, we, we have a silt loam soil, so it's with a little bit of clay to it. So sometimes it's a little sticky and a little harder to clean off of certain things. So basically we, we'd load up the front end loader with a bunch of crates on a, well, on a pallet on the front end loader with a bunch of crates. And, um, Jesse would go in front. She would harvest. Well, it really depends. She would harvest, cut, cut the root, cut it off, clean it a little bit and flip it over. And then typically I'm driving the tractor with Scott picking the head up and then packing it, uh, depending on the variety, you know, up butt side up or, or, or head side up. Um, and then just trying to go through the field as quickly as we can, um, to get the crates packed. Are those being field packed or do those go into the packing shed for further washing and processing? Um, so we would, we bring them to the wash, the wash station and they're not packed into half bushels there. We like to dunk them, just dunk the whole crate very, like kind of carefully into like one of those big Rubbermaid tubs, um, you know, just with another crate on top, just as like a, so it doesn't float, uh, hold it down for a few seconds and swish it around just to get a little more of the dirt off, um, that might be at the base of the, of the lettuce. And then. And then we actually we actually do most of our packing at market, uh, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> what what do you what kind of a facility do you guys have for a packing shed? Pretty much, it's the lowest tech uh, thing that you can imagine. Um, because we rent land, uh, we have two shipping containers that we one we use for storage and one we kind of use more as like wash pack. Um, so that's that's kind of limiting for us. We. We want, we, we think about building, you know, some sort of structure, but because we rent land, it's a little, it's a little hard for us to think about investing in it right now. So we just kind of make do where we can. So if you're using a shipping container for a packing shed, tell me a little bit about how you've got that set up. Yeah. I mean, we, the shipping container is kind of not, not really well set up right now. You know, we've been meaning to, to put some sort of poly liner down. Um, but we really, we really just pack like under tents or tarps or whatever we have around for shade and then load it in the van and get, get in the walk-in. Awesome. With that, we're going to stop here, take a break, and then we'll be right back with Chris Field from Camparoso Farm in Gilbertsville, Pennsylvania. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about marketing and, and more about the, the wonderful world of growing specialty chicories. 
Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment that a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as a four-wheel farm tractor, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I've spent most of the time that I was using them thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support is also provided by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils that you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company all have a practical understanding of the challenges that organic growers face, and they combine that with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant science and an intuitive comprehension of it all that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost and inhaling deeply. Vermont Compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous, they're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. And by the way, the donkeys, they're the real thing, I've seen them. And you can get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com. And we're back with Chris Field from Camparoso Farm in Gilbertsville, Pennsylvania. Chris, you were talking about, before we went on break, you were talking about actually doing a lot of your, your packing things into boxes at market. Can you, can you describe how your marketing flow works? I, I, it's my understanding that a lot of what you do is based around your presence at the green market there in New York. Yeah, so for instance, this past week, um, because we have limited harvest labor, you know, if we do the market on Fridays, Wednesday, Thursday, a lot of times is harvest as much as we humanly can. Um, and then, you know, we try to get to the market as early as we can. So typically, uh, like this week, we got this past week, we got there at 515. Um, we kind of set up our stand, but don't start putting stuff out yet. And then we just go as hard as we can on packing until like the last moment when we need to actually start setting up. Um, so that's like, you know, you can pack a lot of vegetables in an hour and a half. If you really, if you have a nice flow going. How far is it for you guys to get into New York city? Uh, so it takes us a little over two hours in the morning to get to the city. It's about a hundred miles roughly. And you guys are going into New York instead of going and hitting Philadelphia, which is quite a bit closer. Yeah, some of some of the reason for that is just that we know that market. Um, the two farms that we worked on previously, both are kind of like institutional farms at the green market in Union Square in New York. Um, so it's just we know that market well. We have solid relationships with a lot of different people, uh, not only just restaurants, but, you know, the, the folks that gr that run the green market. Um, so we. We just, we knew it and we saw an opportunity and went for it instead of something that's slightly closer. Tell me how the green markets work in New York City. It's something that I think those of us in the other parts of the country have heard a lot about, but don't really 
I don't really have a, a clear understanding of, of what the green market is. Yeah. So green market grow NYC is a non-for-profit um, that basically got started because they wanted to, you know, have fresh food available to the masses in the city because, you know, upstate New York and Pennsylvania and, and Jersey have this rich, you know, farmland that, that uh, the city was kind of lacking fresh produce. Um, so they started the farmer's market and, you know, now there's, I think there's over a hundred, hundred different locations in, in the greater New York city area. Um, and they do a lot of community outreach and a lot of different things uh, for like, you know, local food and for, for getting food places that maybe isn't in the city uh, more accessible to people. So they're a pretty pretty amazing organization, and uh, we're really we're really lucky to be be at the market that we're at in the position that we're at. Now, where is your market at in New York City? Uh, so we do the Friday market at Union Square, which uh, Union Square is a is a centrally located park in uh, New York. It's on 14th Street, uh, more or less, and you know there's a it's a main subway stop for or five different subway trains that cross right there. Um, so it's just like kind of a pretty lively neighborhood uh, with a lot of people going around. I feel like I've heard that the estimate is um, like on Saturday is 20,000 people that go through there on a busy Saturday. If I, if I'm not mistaken, they go through the farmer's market. Yes. Saturday is unreal. Wow. Okay, and so you said you're at the Friday market at, at Union Square. Are you guys also there at the Saturday market? No, so the Union Square market itself is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So it's four days a week, uh, different different growers on different days. And, you know, each day has its plus and minus to it. Interesting. And is that where most of your wholesale sales are happening? Or is that, are people coming and making those selections and picking them up? At farmers market, or are you also doing deliveries to stores and restaurants there in New York City? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of both. Um, the the Union Square market is really amazing because it has this rich culture of restaurants, you know, within a you know, say five to ten block radius, and restaurants that you know are established and and um, you know pretty well known and and pretty famous for for making that neighborhood great. Um, so. Typically, um, our wholesale stuff, they do come to market, uh, pick up at market, you know, because then it's a really great place to go and, you know, buy a ton of different produce. And then, you know, if it's if it's walkable, a lot of place, a lot of the restaurants will have kind of like one of those Rubbermaid carts to bring it all back. Or a lot of places, sometimes even way out in Brooklyn, come to the market and then just take a cab back to the restaurant with a van full of produce. Wow. <laughs> That's so New York. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And even like even recently, you know, some of our better customers that are that are far out in Brooklyn, you know, one of their cooks was sick and the other sous chef was was out of town. And so I actually had to throw their order into an Uber. They requested an Uber, which I don't know if everyone knows what Uber is, but it's it's kind of like a ride sharing app where you hail um, a car service. So he hailed it went out in Brooklyn, but had had as if he was in Union Square. And I just met the driver and said, here you go, take this. And he knew where to go. And there, there his order went. And when when chefs are are getting their product at market, have they ordered it with you in advance or do they come and they look at it and they go, 
I want a case of that Punterella. Yeah, so it's it's both. Uh, we do we do maintain a, an email list where we send out product availability, and people do pre-order for the most part. And then typically, you know, stuff that maybe didn't make it on the list of availability, or um, you know, if they saw something like, oh, that basil does look really nice, I'll get extra basil too. So it's it's both that they pre-order pre-order and also um, pick up extra stuff while they're there. Like, you know, if, if someone, maybe someone back at the restaurant was like, Oh, we really need more mint or whatever. And you guys are only four years into running your own business. How did you guys score a stall at the Friday union square green market? Uh, that is a stroke of pure luck. Um, no, uh, so Rick Bishop of Mountain Sioux Berry Farm, who was the first farmer we worked for, he's been doing green market since 86 or 87 or something, I think. He's he's like kind of the hero of the green market and our biggest mentor. Um, when we were getting ready, you know, we were we were getting really good at growing chicories and stuff at his farm and then at the other farm here in Pennsylvania. Uh, we he kind of encouraged us. He was like, Hey man, go find some land, get, you know, get, get out there, get, get growing, do this for yourself. And, uh, he, he pretty much sent the nicest possible email ever to Michael Horowitz who runs grow NYC saying, you know, these, these, these two young, young kids have put in their time and, you know, they're going to grow a really amazing product. And, and, uh, initially we basically pitched it to green market that, you know, we're growing something that isn't, that there's a demand for that not a lot of people are growing. And, you know, we kind of want to like offer this amazing product that we don't think that we could sell a ton of anywhere else in the country, you know, cause when we, when we were getting ready to start the farm and we knew chicory was going to be a big part of it, we, we looked at a few different places. Um, like my grandmother lives in North Carolina. So we went down there and checked that out. And, and, you know, as soon as I saw the, the scene there, which is, is, much more booming now, I think, than it was back a few years ago. Um, it just, I kind of got freaked out a little bit because I was like, I know this market in New York. Why, why would I, why would I take this amazing opportunity to sell to all these great restaurants and all these high end clients? Uh, why would I throw that out the window? Because I maybe wanted to like not have a long commute once a week or twice a week. And that must have been kind of an interesting decision-making process because, I mean, here you are juggling this whole issue of land and market and product, really, because I do think there's something to what you just said, that New York City is probably an easier place to sell weird and freaky chicories than North Carolina. Nothing against North Carolina. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, definitely, um, you know, there, there's definitely like just like a uh, a culture of, of food that, that doesn't exist a lot of other places in the country, you know, like I would say California and New York are probably the two big places, you know, Pacific Northwest kind of, kind of is starting to have a few different, different farms growing a lot of nice radicchios and things. But, you know, I think that like the, 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 the clientele that, you know, has spent time say in Tuscany or in, in Venice or, you know, these, these faraway places, those are typically the type of people that are going to search out, you know, Chioggio Radicchio or Castelfranco or, you know, someone that lived in Rome for a year and they used to eat Punterelli all fall. That was like, you know, they, they want to eat it still. And for them to be able to find it in New York, they, they're really happy. And have you had other growers 
in your marketplace look at what you're doing and want to jump on the chicory bandwagon? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that there's there's always been some people that grow Kyoja and Treviso and stuff and you know, there's there's another farmer that that's uh, that I can think of that that grows Treviso and back before I knew a ton about it, you know, I remember being like this Treviso looks different, doesn't look right. And now I I realize that he's probably seeding it with with like a he's probably seeding it with like um a planet junior cedar and just he bunches it because it's like three or four little spindly plants in a bunch and i'm like well he just doesn't he doesn't quite get it um but yeah definitely the the pressure is there i feel like for for us to kind of kind of stay on top as the chicory kings and queens of the city and that was that was a big conscious decision you know the first year that we farmed um we we were working we were working full time at the tomato farm uh, here in Pennsylvania, and we started to plant uh, on our days off. We 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 were like, we have to take two days a week off from the tomato farm. And that first fall, I think we grew we grew about an acre and a half total, a, a bunch of different things, and you know about an acre of that was radicchio. So that was like I knew going into it, I want to start green market. I want to do the market. I want restaurants to come on and know right away, like this is the chicory farm, you know, because I think a big thing for us um, to get out in front is to be the farm that grows this crop for this market, kind of. So one of the interesting things as I was researching your farm is that you've got a big presence on Instagram, but you don't seem to have any other web presence it doesn't look like you've got a website it doesn't look like you've got a presence on facebook yeah we uh i don't know i guess it's the 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 youth and both of us that we uh we started instagram um and it was really fun because instagram has this amazing community of of young farmers all around the country and it's pretty amazing to see in real time what other farms are doing you know like and it, it creates this amazing dialogue, you know, like, oh, you're pruning tomatoes. Oh, do you do one liter or two? Do you do this? And and it's it's really fun and been a huge help for for me and for a lot of other farms that I know to be able to bounce ideas off other people and see what, you know, like, oh, you you do winter squash this way or oh, what's your wash station look like? And it's I think it definitely has like jump-started a lot of farms into being more productive faster uh, because of that. And, and you haven't found the, the lack of a website or the lack of a Facebook presence has had an impact on your marketing at all? No, uh, not really. Uh, you know, our business is so restaurant-heavy um, that, you know, having our name on the menu at Gramercy Tavern, which is a really well-known restaurant or, you know, wherever else, um, that might, you know, be enjoying our product and put our name on the menu. You know, if it's a high profile place, that that's a big part of, you know, marketing in and of itself. It's just really, you know, I would have never thought of it or whatever that's worth. Hype is everything, man. That's for sure. Now at market, you're putting out a lot of products that people aren't going to instantly recognize. Have you found ways of, of educating customers about what you're doing or is it been more that people come to you and they they know what they're looking for. They know that they're looking for a Treviso or a Punterella and and that's what they're going to get. Yeah, um to be completely honest, a lot of times 
we, we kind of joke that like, so at the Union Square market, you know, your 8 a.m. customers, you know, the morning customers are your foodies and they typically know what they want that, you know, they're well-educated in, in, in terms of food and, and culinary uh, abilities. So they typically, you know, they'll see a Treviso and they'll know that they want it and they want to grill it or they know um, that they want to make a nice salad with a Castelfranco. Um, but then at the afternoon customers are kind of more you're just like your passer through type uh, people. And those typically take uh, a little more coaxing for them to understand the product that we have. But a lot of times, you know, some of the more obscure varieties we have don't really last much past, you know, nine o'clock in the morning or maybe even 10 o'clock in the morning because the restaurant's present restaurant presence is so high and stuff just gets packed, packed pretty quickly and sold. Now you said, I think that, that you're trying not to have leafy crops on the same piece of ground more than one out of every three years. What are some of the other specialty crops that you're growing? Yeah, so we we do a lot of different things throughout the year at higher volume. Um, so right now we're doing a lot of baby leaf, baby uh, baby head lettuce production um, because it's it's early in the spring and we can do a lot of it. We do a fair amount of peppers. A lot of sweet peppers we're really well known for. Some really obscure varieties that are kind of hard to find. Um, we've kind of done some more spe- specialty zucchini. Um, we do couple different special tomatoes that we really like but some of the other crops we grow we really just try to focus on flavor and then you know what really what we want to eat the most of and then grow a lot of it and just move it as quickly as we can and when you're focusing on flavor from a marketing perspective i mean people buy with their eyes and so how are you getting that message across uh, I think some of it, uh, well, I guess it depends on, depends on the crop, you know, like when we, <clears throat> we grow a cherry tomato, a red cherry tomato that we really like, uh, because it's super sweet and has a good tomato flavor. And that's something that's really easy to say, try one, you know, and then people taste it and they're blown away by it. Um, we do use a refractometer, which, uh, maybe you're familiar with it. It measures the, the sugar content of, you know, say a tomato or a zucchini or, you know, any crop. Um, we do use that sometimes to kind of give ourselves a range, you know, like if we, if we have a cherry tomato, that's a 12 bricks, you know, we know we're doing, we're, we're doing well with, with the, the cherry tomatoes at that time. Um, and that's kind of, we, we probably could use that to market more, um, you know, but I don't know. Pretty much the demand for most of the stuff we grow is, is high enough that we, we don't really have to push super hard um, to get everything sold. And for you, is, is growing especially flavorful varieties of crops, is that a matter of variety selection or are you doing things with your soil or with your fertility program or or other aspects in order to really pump up the flavor in your produce yeah um i think it's a combination of things um so rick bishop who we worked for he was who's our biggest mentor his big thing has always been mineralizing the soil um and he was he's pretty much where we've we've learned the majority of our focus on taste you know and and growing things for for the most palatability and um we do certain things that uh that 
are really going to allow us to have a better flavor flavored tomato or um, you know zucchini or, or or pepper or anything. And you know one of the one of the big big things that we do is we use uh, soft rock phosphate, um, which is uh, a phosphorus source that has a fair amount of calcium in it. And uh, you know if you use that at a high rate, it doesn't leach the same way that you know a manure based phosphorus would. So you know you can have a high phosphorus level. And it not be the same type of issue as if you were just putting on a ton of manure. And do you find that that doing things like varying harvest time or other things like that makes a difference with the flavor of the tomatoes? Yeah, like uh, like tomatoes, for instance, uh, the field tomatoes we typically do not irrigate, um, and it's been it's been kind of a whirlwind of. You know, if we get a rainy June, we'll have good fruit set. Uh, and then, you know, if it, it typically dries out most of July, uh, we can have pretty good flavor. And, you know, I think a lot of people would probably say that we're stupid for, you know, taking some, something that needs a lot of water, like a tomato, and not irrigating it. But um, after working on the tomato farm here in Pennsylvania that grew 40,000 tomato plants, uh, I'd, I'd rather grow, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 plants, but then taste incredible than you know forty thousand, and you know have a ton of tomatoes and i mean i think about dry farming and i know folks out in california that do that that advertise their tomatoes as being dry farmed tomatoes are you doing anything special in your production process to make it possible to grow them without irrigation not really um we kind of like on the tomatoes specifically we kind of you know we put down a fair amount of soft rock phosphate um some different some other minerals uh that we like to use for tomatoes specifically and then we kind of we you know we 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 trail them with a florida weave and we kind of just let them we let them go and see you know see what they produce and kind of in a lot of ways abuse them uh by not giving them enough water or anything and and typically we find that that results on most years in a pretty flavorful tomato. Now on my farm, we've always found that it was important to keep steady moisture with the tomatoes. Otherwise we ended up with massive problems with cracking. Has that not been your experience? Yeah. So we, we've actually pared down really hard um, with, with certain tomatoes. Um, we really only grow, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Now we grow like, uh, about five or six different large heirloom type tomatoes that we really like. We grow one red cherry tomato. We grow a, a grape, uh, an Italian grape tomato that we harvest on the vine. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, we basically just have found tomatoes that we really like uh, for flavor that do pretty well under these growing conditions. Like the the cherry tomato that we grow, some people maybe would think it has a slightly tougher skin because of the uh, the like you know the inconsistent moisture levels, and I think that, that that that's a stress response. But when they eat the tomato, the flavor of it's so good that they typically don't care that it has a slightly firmer skin. And when you're deciding on something that you like, is that a matter of? you and Jesse making those decisions or are you taking your experimental crops to market and, and working on getting feedback from your chefs and your retail customers? A little bit of both. Um, I think that like the majority of what we grow, 
we wanted to grow it first because we wanted to eat it ourselves. And, and a lot of times um, it, we try to be selfish in certain ways of, of uh, I don't know, we, we feel like we should be eating what we're growing as much as we can and, and enjoying it. And then, you know, and then if I have, we have extra, you know, we'll sell it, especially like some of the, some of the trial varieties that were, you know, say we're trying a new lettuce variety or a new zucchini or a new kale or whatever. It pretty much has to go through us before we even, before we even let anyone else try it. But a lot of times it, it works out that it's a variety that we, we really like. And, and then we put it into full production the following year. And then are you guys doing any storage crops or is everything that you're doing harvested fresh and delivered that same, that same week? Yeah, we do very little storage crop. Um, fall, we do do some so- storage, radish and turnip, uh, those kind of things. We don't really do a lot of carrots. Um, some of it has to do with uh, like a really good friend of ours, Tyler at Alewife Farm. He He grows a lot of really nice carrots. So... You know, he does the same market as us. So out of respect for him, he, he can grow as much carrot as he wants. We'll, we'll stay out of carrot. Um, but yeah, pretty much typically uh, most of the most of what we sell is harvested fresh and sold, you know, within a day or two of harvest. And are you marketing year round at that Union Square Farmers Market or are you guys wrapping things up in the wintertime? So the Union Square Market is a 12, 12 month uh farmers market that goes year round and it's some of the farmers that do it year round are pretty hardcore um we definitely because we're limited in labor and are pushing ourselves pretty hard you know 10 10 to 11 months out of the year we try to we try to finish up most harvests um say mid mid to late january and take most of february off um and then start back up in mid-March, more or less, with some early greenhouse salad mix type stuff and and uh, some like greens and microgreens and stuff. So we've spent the interview talking with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your partner, Jesse, and, and how she's involved in the farm and how maybe that's similar to or different than how you're involved with the farm? Yeah, Jesse pretty much keeps me in line uh, most days. Uh, yeah, we we kind of just split responsibilities a little bit. You know, like I do more of the tractor work. She does more of the greenhouse maintenance. But then we meet together and do the planting together, obviously, and harvest together. Um, but yeah, we, we pretty much work side by side, day in and day out. Um, and she definitely keeps us balanced uh, in, in terms of, uh, I don't know. I feel like I have a, a tendency to want to do too much um, and not know the limit of of our scale. But uh, she definitely reins me in, a, in on that one in a, in a in a positive way. But she uh, she's definitely like the the more behind the scenes making it making it happen. And I guess people would say maybe I'm a little more uh, vocal and out front on for the business. And are you guys both involved in marketing at the green market? Yeah. Um, so typically um, a normal day at the market, it'll be Jesse, uh, me. And then we have at least one or two people at market. Like currently Jesse's brother is helping us. And, uh, you know, Jesse kind of does a lot of the table customers, um, you know, keeps all of them happy. I'm doing a little bit more of the restaurant side of things. But, you know, 
we're definitely both very involved in the marketing aspect of it. And um, we, uh, we both work really well together in that respect. How did you guys meet and end up deciding to farm together? <laughs> that's a pretty, that's a crazy long story. We're actually both originally from Florida um, and we've known each other. We knew each other in Florida before we, I made the trek up north to work at restaurants in New York. And uh, I moved to New York and she was finishing school at uh, UF, uh, University of Florida for political science. But now we look back and UF has a pretty good ag program. So she, she kind of kicks herself a little bit, but not really. Um, and then we started dating um, and when she was still in school, long distance, and then moved to New York and worked in New York for a while. She was doing retail and I was working in restaurants and, you know, we were kind of tired of living in Brooklyn and paying $1,600 for a small little apartment. Um, so we, you know, reached out to some of the, we reached out to the farms that we, we knew and were friendly with that market. We're like, Hey, you know, like, you know, we're kind of, we want to take a break from the city. And so we went and worked for Rick Bishop at Mountain Sioux Berry Farm. Never looked back. Never looked back. Yeah. It's kind of nice because, you know, we're both in the city one day a week at least. So we, you know, we still, we, we have kind of best of both worlds because we can, we can still go to like, you know, an Italian specialty store and buy nice dried pasta or whatever. And, uh, and then live out in the country in the quiet and be outside all day. So it's kind of been a really a good balance for us um, to, to have both worlds. And are you guys pretty happy with how the economics and the quality of life are balancing out for you? Quality of life, maybe not that so much um, because our labor situation has been so limited. Um, you know, we definitely don't want to be to be putting so much on ourselves um, so hard, but because it's, you know, we're such a new farm, um, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of bitten the bullet and been like, well, you know, it's growing our business. So, you know, not a ton of personal time or not a ton of time off is, is kind of secondary to this amazing opportunity that we have. Um, and financially we have been very lucky um, to have such an amazing market and to come come in at the right time with the right type of specialty crops. And uh, it's, it's done pretty well for us. Do you see things changing in your labor market? at some point in the future, or is this, is this going to be something that's a thorn in your side going forward? We're definitely working towards it. Um, I think that, I think that we were just trying to find the right fit. Um, uh, cause initially, you know, like the tomato farm we worked at in Pennsylvania, here in Pennsylvania would have a crew of like, you know, 26, 27 different Spanish workers. Um, and we managed that crew and, you know, we both speak a little bit of Spanish and, and, uh, you know, we did well at that farm with managing that size of, of a crew, but we didn't really, we didn't really know if we wanted to deal with all the interpersonal things that go along with, with that big of a crew and like some of the drama involved. Um, so we initially, when we started the farm, we were, we were going to try to find more, you know, people that were really into food, you know, that maybe weren't from an agricultural background that, you know, that wanted to learn it and be really interested in it as opposed to doing uh, more of like a traditional farm based around Spanish labor. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we're, we're working towards figuring that out right now. And you mentioned that you're, you're renting land. Is that a fairly stable 
land tenure situation for you? Yeah, our landlords, the Swartleys, are pretty much the nicest people ever. Um, they've been super supportive to us all along. Um, that you know, anytime, anytime we've needed anything, and even the first, the first year when we found the bigger property, um, I was initially just going to cover crop it until we could transition and move. And they were like, "Oh no, you know, they have a seventy-five horsepower New Holland tractor." She was like, "No, you can use whatever equipment we have." You can use, you know, use it however you want. And they've been so generous to us that first fall. We, we were like, all right, cool. We'll put in winter squash. We'll do we'll do some different things that are, you know, kind of less labor, less constant. eye, more, you know, go in and bulk harvest, you know, at the in the fall or something. So um, they've been they've been amazing to us. And we're we're really grateful for that to have the relationship with them. With that, Chris, we're going to switch modes here and go to our lightning round. But first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Today's lightning round is brought to you by Store It Cold's CoolBot. The CoolBot has changed the way farmers think about cooling facilities for their vegetables by making it possible to cool a walk-in cooler with a window air conditioning unit with massive savings on the front end and an ongoing electricity and maintenance cost. And now, CoolBot has taken another step forward and created a turnkey refrigeration solution an energy-efficient walk-in cooler designed for easy assembly by you in hours, not days. I know from experience how much time and energy can go into building a not-so-great homemade walk-in cooler or looking for a used one that's still in good condition. Save yourself the time, save yourself the money, and save yourself the headache. And make yourself produce stand out in the marketplace when it lasts on store shelves, in restaurant walk-ins, and in your customer's refrigerator drawers because you sold it to them cold. If, if you're purchasing a CoolBot, please use the code FDF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge or mention Farmer to Farmer and receive an exclusive discount on your walk-in cooler solution. Storeitcold.com. Chris, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, if I have to pick one, uh, it would be the finger reader, hands down, for sure. But if I had a, if I had a second option, it would be a we had a custom built uh reel a three-point hitch reel to roll up row cover onto two by fours and that has been almost uh, a relationship saver for jesse and i <laughs> <laughs> tell me about that uh yeah so um here in, in pennsylvania uh southeastern pennsylvania there's there's a large population of of mennonite farmers uh which if you're not familiar they're they're kind of similar to the Amish, except for they're a little more, more progressive. They'll use tractors, but they have to use steel wheels. Um, and they're, they're, they're amazing neighbors. They're amazing farmers. And so one day we had seen um, one of the, our local welder, he, he had made um, a four foot wide reel to roll up plastic. You know, like you, you'd use a, a lifter to lift the plastic up and then you'd go through with this with this reel and roll, roll it up onto a piece of two by four and then just throw the whole thing away at the end of the season. And I, I was just talking with him and I was like, can we get you to make that? But so I can reel up seven foot row cover or whatever size row cover onto an eight foot two by four. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So it's, it's basically just a three point hitch frame. That's it's, it's actually like nine feet wide, but it has these kind of like, um, it's kind of like things where you slide the two by four in on each side. And then all it is is a hydraulic gear um, that turns the two by four. And so I'm on the tractor 
controlling the the hydraulics and Jesse just gets gets the row cover set on the piece of two by four and then we just reel it in and it's the easiest thing in the world it's it's really like I hate row cover more than maybe anything on a farm and this has made it way more manageable yeah that sounds awesome yeah, there's there's a video of it on our Instagram, and and I like a lot of people have contacted us about it because it's it's been amazing for us to use, and and you know, it was it was really inexpensive inexpensive for him to make, and I almost feel like I should talk to him about making it uh, at some sort of scale for for farms because I feel like there's a probably a pretty good interest in it. What does Campo Rosso mean? Uh, roughly translates into Redfield. Um, so you know, when you look out at it, all the radicchio a lot of red so there you go i like that what is your favorite chicory to grow probably i'm gonna go with kyoja because it's so reliable (laughs) unlike everything else that you're doing yeah i mean definitely definitely that's probably my favorite to grow for reliability but for for taste the castel franco is pretty hard to beat uh tardivo even though it's forced and takes a ton of labor, it's, it's also really special. So yeah, that's, that's that. And outside of the chicory family, what's your favorite crop to grow? Favorite crop to grow other than chicory. That's pretty hard. Uh, I mean, I really do enjoy growing the sweet peppers that we grow. We, we, we grow 19 or 20 different varieties of specialty ones that are a little more uncommon. And it's just, I don't know, there's something about all the diversity of shapes and size and color and tastes. Um, it's just a lot of fun. I just, uh, when it's a hot day, like getting out there and picking peppers, I don't know. I've always really enjoyed it. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Buy a finger weeder day one. There you go. I think that seems like a pretty common sentiment lately. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm glad to, to, to talk with you about what we do. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 124 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for field. That's F-I-E-L-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. You can head over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show. You can talk to us in the show notes at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. You can tell your friends about Farmer Farmer Podcast on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate the support of a resource that you value. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>